Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to us and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening. For you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. And thank you for being with us this Saturday night, June 25th, at Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Truthiness is indeed our language. We hope that you are well, and we hope that you have in some way empowered both your life and the, li- and the life of of our community across this country tonight at our common ground we welcome you to a discussion with Roan Fraser and Lauren Burke Roan Fraser is a radio talk show host a playwright a doctoral candidate in the Department of African American Studies at Temple University he is writing a dissertation on influential African-American editors of the first half of the 20th century, from Pauline Hopkins to Paul Roberson. He has written biographical plays on Fannie Lou Hamer, and most recently, The Power Couple of A. Philip Randolph and Lucille Green Randolph. He is the host of his own talk show, Freedom Readers which airs on Thursdays at 7 p.m., and you'll find out more about that when we talk with Roan Fraser. In our second page, we're going to be visited by Lauren Victoria Burke. She's a writer, publisher, and she is the publisher of Crew of 42. As a reporter, she has covered Capitol Hill since 1999, both as a writer and a photographer, and she worked on the Hill for Senator Tom Daschle at the Senate Democratic Policy Committee and in in the late Senator Ted Kennedy's education office. She has also worked at ABC News, USA Today, Associated Press, the Washington Post, and the Hill newspaper. 
and she owns a photo service. And if you have not checked it out, her work has appeared in Ebony Time, The Loop 21, Politics 365, The New York Times, and many other publications. But her blog, crewof42.com, represents her personal views, reporting, and opinions, not those of her employers or her publishers. It is a lively and serious blog which follows the march of legislation brought forth by members of the Congressional Black Caucus in this 111th Congress at the dawn of the Obama era. And we hope that you will bring with us your um, calls and your opinions. So... We're going to get started, and in our chat room, Shaka Zulu, we welcome you tonight, my brother, and we hope that you are well. And it looks as though Alpha has um, a fix on the computer part, and we're glad to have him in our chat room. And Stephen, thank you for being with us, and I'm sure many of you who are out there listening of our regulars will join us in this very important evening where we bring alternative activist empowerment talk radio. And for those of you who are new, I don't have a bell and I don't sing Barry White, but I do welcome you so much and hope that you will become part of the family that speaks truth as our first language. And joining me now... Uh, Roan Fraser, who is in this first page going to talk to us about a number of subjects, but first we want to get you to know him. He's a radio talk show host, a playwright, and a doctoral candidate at Temple University in the Department of African American Studies, which, if you do not know, is one of or the most prestigious and long-term black studies program in this country. Roan, thank you so much uh, for uh, joining with us tonight. I am so glad to have you, my brother, and welcome to Our Common Ground. My sister, BJ, thank you so much for inviting me. It is an honor to be on your discussion program, especially learning of all the positive influence you provided for Dr. Manning Marable up to his passing, the support you've given him, the support you've given this work. It is such an important work that he has left us with, um, an important meditation on Malcolm X, perhaps the most influential thinker of the 20th century, who inspired the Black Panther Party, who inspired the presence of now U.S. Representative Barbara Lee, who has continued um, influencing so much people and has left an important mark for all Americans about seriously considering the importance of revolution. I want to thank you so much, Sister BJ, for all the work you've put on Facebook on the Facebook group that is called Malcolm X, devoted to discussion of this book, and for all the discussion you encourage about this book. We have to really apply what uh, Marable, Dr. Manning Marable has left us to what is happening today. And when we look at a lot of the reaction of this book, um, we can see that what seems to be a little scholarly jealousy, I believe, on the part of many people reacting to it. Um, 
a lot has been made about how Dr. Manning Marable turns Malcolm X into a social democrat or a reformer rather than a revolutionary. And we all know that the big difference between a reformer and a revolutionary is that a reformer works within the electoral system, but a revolutionary um, seeks social change by calculated instrumental acts of violence. And the revolu- the man we get from, the, the Malcolm X that we get from Manning Marable is, in fact, revolutionary. He shows from an early time not only his seeing that the only way to achieve change is by calculated violence, but he also sees the importance of working with those within the electoral system, such as Bayard Rustin. He has a strong relationship with Bayard Rustin that Manning Marable tells us about. They both agree, um, just before the March on Washington, Marable has a part in the biography where he talks about both um, Malcolm and Bayard Rustin agreeing on the fact that what King called a dream in 1963 on that March on Washington is in fact a nightmare. And it, it is the unfulfilled reality that we see today with Obama caving to the corporate banking class rather than to the people that helped get him um, to be in a position to be president. So a lot, um, first, the, the most notable review, BJ, Sister BJ, of this book is by Amiri Baraka, where he basically critiques Marable for calling the NOI a sect or a cult. And when we look at that argument, compared to the greater philosophical questions, greater instrumental ways that Manning teaches us about how revolutionary work, um, we have to conclude that Baraka's critique is trite. It is trivial compared to the information that Manning Marable releases and provides us about how to think as a revolutionary, how to function as a revolutionary. A revolutionary must work with those people who believe in the electoral process the way that Malcolm did by maintaining relationships with those uh, people like Donald Warden, who ended up inspiring Huey Newton, Bobby Seale. You know, if, if, if Malcolm X did not maintain relationships with, with people in the electoral process, he would not have had as much influence. So um, I, I take issue with uh, Mary Baraka's review of the uh, of the biography because it does not give Marable credit for showing the full range of people and full range of philosophies that Malcolm deliberately exposed himself to just because he aligned himself and debated with Integrationists like Bayard Rustin and James Farmer does not mean he fully only endorses that. He believed first and foremost in black separatist nationalism. That was his goal. By the same token, he did not neglect dialogue, communication, and relationships with those who believed that separatism was not the goal that should be, but instead he forged relationships with integrationists like Rustin and Farmer. And I think um, Baraka and many other black nationalists take issue with how Marable does it, but he's just showing a full and complete picture of the intellectual revolutionary that Malcolm was. He was always a revolutionary, but he had the wisdom of appealing and making relationships with those who worked within the electoral process. Thank you so much, Sister BJ, for allowing uh, my voice on this very important work and for the discussion of this on Facebook. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting, Roan, as 
um, many of us waited for so long. I know that uh, according to the original schedule for this book, publication was scheduled about two years ago. And because of uh, Dr. Marable's illness, uh, he was not able to meet that schedule. However, I find, and I have, I, 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 I'm on my third reading of the book now. Wow. Uh, one of the things that got in the way very early on is um, just Manning's death uh, and having to get through that. But one of the things that really perturbs me about uh, much of the criticism that is going on about this book uh, is not that people, certainly other scholars, have the right to um, to evaluate and assess, but it is the way in which, as though there was only one Malcolm. And as you read this book, you are seeing Malcolm uh, uh, in in the aspect of Malcolm working under the 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 stress of having a passion for justice and freedom, of having a passion for informing and framing the existence of African Americans in this country. And as Marable reveals those areas of, of, of change and circumstance with Malcolm, it's as though we are only able to deal with one Malcolm when in fact there are more than there is more than one one singular vision that that Malcolm had one of the things that i am enjoying so much about the work that Marable did was that he shows you Malcolm maturing mm-hmm. yes, and it he does. certainly it certainly comes across as uh, in one stage, one stage of maturity is how he responds to his obligations and responsibilities to the lost foundation of Islam and 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 having uh, the responsibilities that um, um, the, um, Elijah Muhammad gave him. And then, on the other hand, responding to the contemporary issues and state of black America, which was aside from the lost foundation of Islam. So I'm wondering if all of this brouhaha that's going on is that as a black nation, our ability to grasp the myriad and sometimes fractured Malcolm. Yes. I believe so, um, and and what we get from that is a fractured belief in um, the dogma or the doctrine of Islam. As uh, Malcolm progresses in his life, he starts to see that not all white people are devils, and um, that's one of the tenets of the Nation of Islam that they taught. They also taught that you cannot have faith in the white man's justice system, the political system, but we see especially in his 1964 speech, The Ballot or the Bullet, that he is encouraging people to vote. He explicitly tells them to vote. He also tells them um, the importance. He tells them to vote also through his 
political group, the OAAU, Organization of African American Unity. That was one of the tenets. So, yes, we see a fractured Malcolm. However, ultimately, it was a Malcolm that understood to achieve real meaningful social change. You have to be both inside and outside the system. You have to work within it, but you cannot work within it alone. This reminds me, Sister BJ, of what Diane Nash told Oprah um, when Oprah did that special show on the Freedom Riders, the 1961 Freedom Riders. One of them was Diane Nash. Diane Nash says, for a citizen in this country, voting is not enough. We cannot simply vote like so many of us did in 2008 when we voted for Obama and then let the process go putting so much trust in Obama. We have to also agitate continuously. Um, there was a measure passed here in Philadelphia that granted city workers sick days recently. That only came through sustained effort to sustained work within the political system through lobbying of council members, but it also came by protesting and marching and leafleting and getting the word out. You know, this is what Malcolm's life shows us, that you have to work within it and outside of it. And I know for Marable, he does, I must confess, there are times when he, um, there are parts of the book where he kind of um, waters down the revolutionary side, but he does discuss it. And I disagree, like I said, ultimately with the, uh, Amir Baraka and Professor Abdullah Kalamat's point that um, the, the Marable, the Malcolm we get from Marable is a Democrat or a reformer, not a revolutionary. I disagree. Ultimately, it's a revolutionary. And we really have to think about um, how revolutions in this world took place. They did not come by <laughs> um, peaceful marches. Sometimes they came by blowing up institutions that represented um, oppression of people, the way that you know fundamentalists believe that embassies should be targeted because they're the place where um, U.S. forces are that decide how to carve up the land and to continue um, making economies out of war and drugs as they're doing in Afghanistan. So Malcolm's lesson for us is so important. You're right, like I said, Sister BJ, it's a fractured mind, but it's ultimately one that um, told us we have to work within and outside the electoral system and depending on the situation, depend on calculating acts of violence if we're going to see change. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that um, Roan, that this book, and for those of you who are just joining us, uh, we're talking about the Manning Marable book, Malcolm X, the, the reinvention, and we certainly encourage each of you to read this book by Dr. Man, um, Manning Marable, um, talking with uh, Roan Frazier, who is a playwright and a doctoral candidate at Temple University in the Department of African American Studies. One of the things that occurs to me is that there is a similarity, uh, especially um, after Malcolm uh, left the Nation of Islam and he began to organize for his his own organizations. And when he returned from his last, the last two months in his life, really there are some similarities between what was happening to Malcolm, the level of stress, the fact that 
Malcolm knew that he was a target, uh, both by the government and by uh, co-conspirators of the government. That's that's how I like to characterize it. I think um, you're right, yes. And the kind of criticism that he was receiving from both the civil rights community as well as um, within his own organizations, there was a great deal of disorganization and um, an inability for this organization to structurally become sound and strong because of his absence. And the fact that Malcolm was trying to do it all. And I see our current president experiencing some of those same kind of characteristics in his leadership of trying to do it all, of miscalculating uh, when to come and when to go. <laughs> that's what I like. I, that's how I like to see it. And I think uh-huh. Marable lays it out so that we can see the revolutionary principles of Malcolm in a way as a map to both leadership and organizational development in our communities to address some of the issues that we do need to address. That's right. He is a map, and that's what toward his life he understood. Um, And as I shared on the book discussion list, one of the lessons of Malcolm's life is that black religious organizations, institutions that Malcolm came from, the NOI, that Martin came from with the Baptist Church, with SCLC, their lives teach us that they cannot function being apolitical. And the NOI because of Malcolm, largely, arguably today, is much more political um, and the better for it. Um, You know, during Martin's um, time, just before he died as well, um, he got attacks from a lot of black pastors saying that he should not critique the Vietnam War, um, that critiquing Jim Crow in America is enough. He should not extend his criticism of the treatment of Vietnamese by U.S. soldiers. But Martin understood rightfully that an injustice to one is an injustice to all. And very much like Malcolm toward the end of his life, you know, I'm still trudging through the book. I'm on Chapter 10 called Epiphany at the Hodge that's talking about um, Malcolm's experience in Saudi Arabia, um, going on the Hodge, then going from the Hodge to Ghana and coming across Maya Angelou and some other American writers and speaking to the question of the revolutions that were happening, the anti-colonial revolutions in Ghana that um, that Kwame Nkrumah ruled over, but all of them, and it's so related to the importance of political involvement of religious mm-hmm. institutions, mm-hmm. political mm-hmm. involvement of religious institutions, very important. What, and Malcolm's what, life tells us, yeah, go ahead. What Malcolm, what Marable does in that particular chapter is he really, you really see the swing between Malcolm trying to bring, uh, uh, the, to merge both his religious, uh, religious principles and his political principles together. And I think that Marable makes it so very clear the changes that he goes through and his even his vision even his understanding 
about the larger black community in America was brought so clear to him by his association with the Du Bois and and um and 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 others on this on that trip. And we don't That's see right. that in most of the work on Malcolm. That's right. And he um has a renewed sense of what to do with his Muslim Mosque Incorporated and it happens his revelations on that trip really reinforce his difference in opinion with the NOI that he is able to apply to his own religious institution. And I think mm-hmm. it's so important that he, you know, learned from the NOI. They were able to nurture him. They unified his family in very important ways. Maribel shows us in the book. But then he had a growth for himself, and he, had, he discovered that he had to grow away from the NOI because they were not trying to have him so politically involved, teaching people how to vote when all the time they discouraged voting. And then when he goes to Africa, he discovers the importance of pan-Africanist thought that the NOI, as Maribel writes, really wasn't going all the way to support. Um, I'm just, yeah, this, this book is such an important survey. When you look at the level of scholarship, as Zahir Ali said, it is the only book that allows you, that refers to Malcolm's travel diaries, that um, that uses that as a reference point. None of the other works up to this point um, reference Malcolm's travel diaries during um, um, the summer of 1964 when he takes the Hajj and he goes to Ghana and really experiences Africa through a pan-African lens. Um, mm-hmm. he, he mentions a very important point Maribel does that um, of Malcolm when he's in, he gives a speech in Ghana and he says any leader that the U.S. supports in Africa needs to be flushed down the toilet and, you know, or, or needs to be not taken seriously. I believe I'm paraphrasing when I said flushed down the toilet. It basically needs to be seen as suspect. And that is so true when we think of Lumumba, who was despised by the U.S. government, who helped execute his assassination in 1961 that Maya Angelou protested. But it's also true when we look at the leaders now, you know, those that mm-hmm. the U.S. hold up as um, as important are those that, you know, supported the oppression of their own people. Um, and, you know, Malcolm's um, words in Africa, his his theoretical lens is still so relevant today it's it's incredible. Um, Tabo and Becky is definitely a leader that has cooperated with Western powers to make um, to expand the gap between the rich and the poor, and to grant more land and privatize water and and uh, further the poverty of the black South Africans in a more unhealthy way. His conduct during the Olympics definitely. Um, made the poor even more poor when they had to build the Olympic Stadium. And like Malcolm said, he is a leader that is celebrated by the U.S., but he's celebrated based on how he oppresses black people. Um, this is the same This is the same theory we could use when looking at Haiti. Michelle Martelly is a U.S.-approved leader who um, really supported the coups of Aristide, um, the democratically elected leader Aristide, who was um, deported by U.S. Special Forces who forced him out of ruling Haiti because he tried to raise the minimum wage. So when we look at Malcolm's analysis that Maribel presents, it is still so relevant to um, what is happening today, and it speaks to his power and his 
his abiding belief in um, revolution. What has happened in Egypt is questionable about whether it's revolutions. You know, Cynthia McKinney has reported about how the flotilla that's supposed to go to Gaza was turned away when it went to Egypt. And she rightfully questions whether the revolution that has happened has not already been influenced and co-opted by U.S. and Western forces. Um, we see the U.S. almost celebrating this revolution. Why are they celebrating it? Because it has elements already within it that will support U.S. interests, which include not supporting the flotilla. Um, and that was evident when the flotilla, Cynthia McKinney reported, was turned away at the Egyptian border. But, you know, the way in which we look at all these analyses we get from the mainstream news that tends to hold people up um, as leaders, Malcolm told us to be suspect of that because they're usually operating in um, some form of white supremacy. And it's really layered, Sister BJ. I want to let you – I have one more point to say about Gaddafi. Um, he has also been able to secure – um, money from the West by denigrating black people. Glenn Ford has written a lot about this. So it's very layered. While Gaddafi is an enemy of the U.S., he still plays on the anti-black sentiments of the um, of the Western powers. Um, and so it's still very layered, but that's why we have to make sure we have to inform ourselves and look for those leaders that look out for the people. It takes work, but Malcolm and, has provided that And that's that why... I believe that is exactly why, given the detail and the content of the Marable book, that it helps us look through the lenses of Malcolm's life at both our relationships in, in, in foreign affairs and public policy in regard to foreign affairs, because I was very struck, Roan, by the idea that the U.S. is boycotting the Global Conference on Racism uh, in New York, did it so publicly, and there was no outcry. Thank you for That's being right. with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We're with Roan Fraser, who is the um, host of Freedom Readers, which airs That's Thursdays right. at 7 p.m. on WPEB, 88.1 FM, West Philadelphia Community Radio. He has written biographical plays on Fannie Lou Hamer, and most recently, that power couple, A. Philip Randolph and Lucille Green Randolph, and he is a doctoral candidate in the Department of African American Studies at Temple uh, University, and in this first page, we wanted to talk with him about both the criticism and the importance of Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, um, authored by 20 Years of Study by Dr. Manning Marable. Uh, Roan, I can't let you be with us without talking about um, your, your, your play, um, your recent play, uh, about A. Philip Randolph and Lucille Green Randolph and your passion about Lucille Green Randolph. Just talk to us very briefly. I know that you have to leave us at um, in a few minutes, but I wanted my audience to know more about that, about that play and about the work that you're doing on your dissertation. Sure. Thank you so much, uh, Sister BJ. I wrote a play um, about Lucille Green Randolph. She is the wife of A. Philip Randolph. She was his backbone when he um, 
edited the very socialist radical, The Messenger, she was the one who financed it through the revenue of her salon that she ran on 135th Street, where very close to where the Schomburg is today, uh, between Lenox and 7th Avenues. And so basically the play is about the dramatic conflict between uh, Lucille Green Randolph and her husband, A. Philip Randolph, who is threatening the stability of the Harlem elite by educating the workers on the class struggle and the importance of labor organizing. There are many in the Harlem elite, the black elite, that is very threatened by this message, and they, um, you know, go to Lucille because they understand that it's her revenue from the shop that is basically funding his socialist paper. So they, uh, the play is about, you know, the steps they take to do whatever they can to end that financial tie, that financial support that Lucille provides to um, to the messenger. And so the play really exposes that conflict in order to really ultimately show um, um, the struggle between one's duty to one's spouse that, 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 that Lucille feels in the need to support her husband and to support his um, socialist message of the importance of labor organizing and the duty to one's business, you know, um, because the elite do threaten her business. And um, she still wants to keep the business, but they do things to the business that threaten it and make her ask her husband to tone down his socialist message. So that is the message of the play. I'm talking with other producers, uh, several producers in New York now, about the potential for producing it. We should have a reading of it in September or by the end of this year, and I have some really talented actors and actresses that I have asked to read particular roles in this play. So I thank you so much for putting the word out. I really hope to give you a firm date on a reading of it um, sometime this year or next. Well, we certainly hope that you will join us uh, as you put this together. Thank you so much, Roan, and uh, I look forward to having you join us at Our Common Ground frequently. Anytime. Thank you so much, Sister BJ, for the invitation, and please keep up the important work. Thank you. You're listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by our second-page guest, Lauren Victoria Burke. She's a writer, publisher of Crew of 42. She's covered the Capitol Hill since 1999. Her work has appeared as both a photographer and a, and, and a writer in Ebony Time, The Loop 21. Crewof42.com is a lively and serious blog which follows the march of legislation brought forth by members of the Congressional Black Caucus in the 111th Congress at the dawn of the Obama era. Thank you so much for being with us. We're going to take this break and we'll be right back. Our Common Ground, talk that matters, 
speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for joining us as we celebrate. I believe in sex. I believe in love. I believe in taking responsibility. I believe in using condoms. Yo confío en mi comunidad. I believe in being honest and open. I believe in keeping my partner safe. I believe in myself. I believe in stopping HIV. I believe in the future. HIV stops with me. 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 Have we looked at looked into the eyes of evil, pure evil, and said to ourselves, what is this country coming to? What have these bigoted races, and I will repeat it, bigoted races. If anybody wants to challenge me on that, have at, have at. Reload some Alpha, the Mo Alpha Show, on TruthWorks Network. More of the Alpha Show, 4 p.m., TruthWorks Network. We'll be taking your calls, um, but we want to introduce you to a new guest at Our Common Ground. She's the founder of CrewOf42.com, and if you do not know that website, that blog site, you should. It is blunt and uh, holds a lively group of politicians at a historic pinnacle of their caucus's influence. Uh, She's covered several political campaigns, including Hillary Clinton's 2000 run for Senate and President Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, and has yielded two books from that campaign, Birth of a Statesman, and a photo book entitled uh, Inauguration Day, and I'll tell you more in this broadcast how you can find those books. Um, we do have a program note. The Alpha Show at TruthWorks Network will broadcast on Monday night at 10 p.m. Mr. Alpha is back in the saddle with his computer. His pewter is working, and we are glad that it is. His swagger and his rock throwing never stopped. So that's Monday night at TruthWorks Network at 10 p.m. Lauren Burke, thank you so much for joining us here at Our Common Ground. How are you, my sister? How are you doing, Janice? How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, I am so glad uh, uh, for you to join us. And we want to talk about not only crewof42.com, because I think it's very important, because people, you know how how we do, and (laughs) if you want to argue with me about it, uh, tonight it's three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. Bring it on, because you know you just criticize the Congressional Black Caucus. Oh, they're not doing anything. They're not helping. 
oh, we just dog them out. <laughs> well, we've got the expert on the Congressional Black Caucus tonight with us, and we're going to be talking with her not only about their legislative initiative and their legislative effectivity, we're going to be talking about um, what is happening in the 2012 battleground states, Ohio, Florida, South Carolina, and Texas, and campaigns on voter suppression. Lauren, tell us, um, give us a summary of exactly where you think the caucus is doing um are, uh, is 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 attending to the interests of the black community. Well, right now the caucus is in a situation, obviously, where they are in the minority in the U.S. House of Representatives. Unlike last Congress when they were in the majority, and of course they did have one senator, Roland Burris, uh, in Illinois. They they had, of course, more power, more influence, and the ability to actually pass some legislation. But now they're in the minority, so. Most of their achievements since the uh, presidency, the start of presidency of Barack Obama in January 2009, most of what they got done was in that first two years. And at the beginning of this year, they, of course, have had problems getting much done, which is why, in fact, they're announcing on Monday a jobs tour across the country during the summer, which has really nothing to do with legislation. It's something that they have uh, really put together themselves, and, and I'm hearing in some cases are paying for out of their own pocket. So uh, that's something that is meant to be a proactive hiring-based jobs tour rather than something where we have companies showing up at a forum and promoting themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a hiring, an emphasis on hiring, an emphasis on actually getting people employed and getting people jobs because right now the number one issue for, for most of the members of the caucus is unemployment because we have a situation where uh, the black unemployment rate is 16.2% and for black males it's 17, which is the highest of any group uh, recorded right now. And that's something that unfortunately can't be fixed uh, with legislation in most cases. And even if it could be, it couldn't get passed through the House. So, you know, when we look at the legislative agenda for the Congressional Black Caucus, there are really three issues that, you know, I think that they tend to really focus on. Uh, in general, they do tend to focus on things that involve uh, low-income people who are having trouble making ends meet, which for the most part are their constituents. But uh, it really comes down to right now unemployment, education issues, and a lot of times incarceration issues. And those three issues tend to be tied together. But um, right now they're very focused on jobs. You have some members of the CBC, um, such as uh, Marsha Fudge in Ohio and Cleveland and John Conyers in Michigan, who are dealing with unemployment rates in the 40% range and really off the charts. So their focus right now is on things that provide actual hiring. Um, the reason I keep sort of saying that is that there's another group of members of Congress called the Progressive Caucus, that also have a, a sort of jobs tour that they're doing. And it's mostly based on town halls and really, you know, people talking. And frankly, to be blunt, people are tired of talk. They're tired of, of, of talk uh, replacing action. So the CBC tour has a, 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 
a much brighter focus on actually getting people hired and dealing with companies that will participate in the tour that have already, you know, already made a commitment to hire a certain amount of people at each stop. So mm-hmm. that's what's going on. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's, I think that's, that's a lot better than what we have seen in the past with other attempts to, uh, you know, put emphasis on, on unemployment. Well, you know, one of the things that I have been concerned about, and I'll express my concern, and you certainly can call us at 347-838-9852 about your concerns and ask Lauren Burke, who's our guest tonight from crewof42.com, to to comment. I have been concerned about the new leadership of the caucus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have, I was one of those people who up until about four years ago went to the CBC uh, con- a week, one-week conference every year to right. try to figure out what was going on. Um, I found that the conference very ineffective, uh, and I just simply stopped going and just decided I would receive reports. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And... And I think that the new leadership has not either found its legs or found its voice. Barbara Lee was very upfront. She was very vocal. She was very visible. Uh, I know Cleaver is trying to be that, but he seems to um, not be as forceful on on some of the issues. I know that my audience especially has expressed over the last 20 years right <laughs> um a need for someone to be angry outraged and hostile on their behalf and that certainly hasn't been the CBC so what can we expect uh on the issue of 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 let's let's just talk about the budget cuts that okay. the republicans are going going forward Uh, Well, you know, what we can expect in this case is what the president, uh, for the most part, decides to to do on things like budget cuts. Because the bottom line of this situation, and I know a lot of people are probably not wanting to hear this, is the leader of the Democratic Party right now is the president of the United States, Barack Obama. Members of Congress in this in this environment, who are in the minority in the House, are at a great power disadvantage. The president has far more power than they do. He has the bully pulpit. He has all the attention. And he has the power to get the media focused on an issue. Uh, An individual member of Congress, whether they be a member of the CBC or anybody else, does not have that power. So one of the complaints that you get from the caucus that you hear a lot of the times is, wow, they're not doing anything. But what I always tell people is just because you don't know about it doesn't mean it's not happening. And we have a media right now, of which I've been a part of since 1994, that is very focused on things that have nothing to do with anything that is of really deep importance, frankly. You know, we'll spend a week on Anthony Weiner, but we won't spend any time talking about major cuts that affect 40 million people who are living below the poverty level. That's the type of reporting that we get. So to bring it back to your question, 
if this president is going to draw a line in the sand with the Republicans early next week on certain things that tend to affect lower-income folks and black people, we should expect that some of the cuts that have been proposed by the Republicans will not happen. But, you know, I would agree with you that, yes, there there is a – there is a uh, a deficit there in the caucus with regard to speaking out loudly or louder on certain things. But I've seen it many times where we are watching them speak out, but they are not receiving the same amount of attention uh, mm-hmm. as they might if they were, one, in the majority, and two, if they were talking about issues that affect corporate America rather than poor people. Right now on Capitol Hill, frankly, there are only two two black reporters who cover the CBC on a regular basis, me and Joyce Jones from Black Enterprise. And that's it. And you've got a, a group there. I'm, I'm sure there's over 1,000 to 2,000 credentialed reporters on Capitol Hill. So if one of us isn't able to get the message out, generally nobody hears it. Now, that may sound like an elaborate excuse, but that's basically how it works. The president has to decide that cutting Pell Grants is not a good idea. Cutting community block grants is not a good idea. When he put his budget out, his budget included a cut of $300 million to community block grants. So, you know, he's the guy in charge. And no, he can't do everything. No, he can't do it alone. Yes, he does get stopped by an obstructionist opposition on the Republican side. But it's not just, you know, the individual member of Congress, it is also the President of the United States making some of these things a priority. So, you know, even though I do see the point that, you know, when Barbara Lee was the chair of the CBC, she was relatively quiet. Emmanuel Cleaver is a lot more outspoken, but it's the extent to which he gets covered that I think is lost mm-hmm. in the translation sometimes. Mm-hmm. Are, are you saying to me that the progressive and liberal media – and I'm talking about Nation Magazine, um, I'm talking about The Root, I'm talking about The Griot, I'm talking about Chicago Defender, the Amsterdam News, I'm talking about, in Florida, the Miami Times. I'm, <laughs> I mean, are you telling me that they, those media outlets, uh, TV One, um, right. Gordon's show on BET, they are not open to the voice of the CBC? I'm, I'm, I'm saying that those media outlets generally rely on wire services, Associated mm-hmm. Press, Reuters, etc. That's generally what they do. They do rewrites of what they see from a wire service. So if your wire service reporter is not paying attention to issues that disproportionately affect black America, that probably doesn't get seen by Roland Martin. When he's sitting watching the news come in, uh, he might not see that. The Chicago Defender does not have a correspondent in Washington. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know, that has its effect because you're getting a second-hand read on what happens rather than talking okay. to people directly. So, okay. you know, of course they would give voice to these issues, but I'm saying that somebody has got to actually make it a priority and send a reporter to focus on what exactly they're doing to get a, a fuller picture of what actually is going on. Now, on on June 2nd, and I want to switch to, because one of the big concerns that I have, Lauren, is the success of this so-called effort uh, on, on, on 
that I, I call it a campaign. Mm-hmm. The Republicans call it a, a campaign for voter suppression. The Republicans are calling it voter fraud, and they have more money than me, so uh, <laughs> it seems mm-hmm. that. But there's some evidence, research showing that actual voter fraud is minuscule, perhaps right. um, less than 1%, um, uh, much less than 1% of the vote are, and, and that's overwhelmingly very well known, that Despite that, Republicans are pushing across this country in key battle states voter fraud laws, and that's been going on for nearly two decades. It costs a lot of money. Parties don't generally spend lots of money and energy on these kind of things, so we're not expecting that the Democrats are armed to go after uh, voter fraud efforts, which is a guise for voter suppression, and the evidence that voter fraud reduces turnout among groups that trend democratic is is also well known. So um, maybe you can come up with a better interpretation of it than I have, and on um, crewof42.com, on, at the beginning of this month, you ran a piece about Representative Corrine Brown asking the Department of Justice to fight uh, the efforts about Florida vote laws there. Uh, I've known um, uh, Representative Brown for a very, very long time when she was in the Florida legislature. Well, when, actually, when she was in the Jacksonville City Council. <laughs> so I've known her a long time. And in Florida is a good example, as you point out on your on your on your site. And I encourage all our listeners to uh, subscribe to crewof42.com. Um, that if this prevails in Florida, as it did in 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 Wisconsin, as it is going to prevail in Ohio and Indiana and New Jersey. What are we to expect? And before, and it, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, what we're to expect is a decrease in the voters that they are targeted, which in all, almost all of these laws, I think actually all of them, Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, and Texas, it focuses, one of the focuses is on making it more difficult for students to vote in one way or another, that they have to have evidence that they're a student and have a residence in that state because, of course, young people voted in droves for President Obama in 2008. So that was one group right there that they tried to, they're clearly trying to uh, make it more difficult uh, for them to cast a vote. And so uh, what has to happen on the other side is a massive voter, voter education drive, which interestingly in Florida they made it harder for the League of Women Voters to register uh register voters and, and really put on an, edu- uh, an education drive. Rock the Vote and League of Women Voters tend to uh, lean Democratic with who they register. And Florida has sort of a provision in the law that, that Rick Scott, Governor Rick Scott signed that, that basically makes it difficult, and the League of Women, Women Voters threw its hands up and left, for people to <laughs> educate the voters on what's going on and, and do registration. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. You and know, believe me, Lauren, the League mm-hmm. of of um of uh women's voters, women's voters. in Florida 
is a very powerful. I, I served some time as a consultant to the Florida uh, Democratic uh, Party, um, and 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 they are very very strong. Have a great organizational presence across the state, and that is why this particular law was targeted. Right, and of course, I think the ACLU has already filed a suit against Governor Rick Scott regarding this. Uh, the push from Corinne Brown to get the Department of Justice and Eric Holder involved uh, should be interesting. It would be interesting to see if they get involved. But I think mm-hmm. what would be the more likely scenario is that someone gets sued and gets litigated and perhaps, you know, is dealt with before the 2012 election, presidential election. But as you can see, it's not a coincidence that the pattern of you know where these states, where these laws have happened, are all the states that are battleground states in 2012. It's Ohio, particularly Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida. <laughs> I mean, those are the mm-hmm. those are three right there that this president uh, he won Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida in 2008, but by very close margins. So it's no surprise to anyone that you know <laughs> this just happens to have popped up in the battleground states. You know, the other form of voter suppression, too, by the way, that isn't often brought up but but disproportionately affects the black community is uh, taking the vote away from felons. And particularly, you know, the only state in the country left right now where it's a lifetime takeaway is Virginia. But in most states, you know, felons cannot vote. So you have a situation where people serve their time, get out, and in Virginia, they still can't vote. When Tim Kaine left office uh, as governor of Virginia, he failed to fix that problem. So that's another little form out there of voter suppression that tends to disproportionately affect minority groups and Democrats. And, you know, as you stated, this idea that there is massive voter, voter fraud sweeping the country and that these laws were necessary is a, is a very dubious and unproven claim. You know, one of the biggest uh, problems in any, uh, especially when you're having a, uh, national elections uh, in any jurisdiction, is the idea of election supervisors by county or however the jurisdiction goes by town uh, is in filing reports. And one of the things that... Um, the Florida law is going to do is to impose a $50 a day fine on election supervisors who are late in filing routine reports with the state. And that is going to cause a huge problem because you also have in election offices across the country budget issues about how many people are working there. So if this just ignites across the country like a brush fire. We're right. we're in for a big problem and I don't mean to dismiss the idea because I know the um lawyers committee is working very hard on the issue of voter laws related to voter rights for expellents. But I'm 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 also very suspect about how effective that's going to be with only one organization working on it. Right, exactly. And the problem of county officials, you see, one of the problems systemic in this is that in the United States, county election officials are partisans. And so you have the 
party that is in power in control of the election rules. So, of exactly. course, the result that you get is the, is that the party in power is not going to change the rules to take themselves and, you know, make themselves less powerful. Of course not. So your election officials are partisans. I mean, even in Iraq, when, when we, you know, administered elections in Iraq, there was a special election commission set up to not be partisan for that very reason. Um, so, you know, you have the fox guarding the hen house when it comes to uh, how elections are set exactly. up in the United States. And that was that was the wedge, that was the wedge issue in Gore in in the in the Gore uh, presidential um, election, right in Florida. It was that in those areas where um, Republicans were in power, like in, in in terms of the political machine, in Miami, Dade County in um some of the in in all of the central and northern counties um i think that this is the ratchet issue for african americans uh i mean if you if you think about in massachusetts well just right here in boston lauren uh we have 156 colleges and universities in the city right. of boston if you think about these law, these kinds of laws being applied to, the, to to students in Boston alone, uh, you've got a big problem. Right, that's right. And, and it's a, it's, it's going to take a massive education effort. And you know, this next this 2012 election, despite what everybody may think, should be very close. It may even be one of these elections where we have the electoral college involved in the situation because mm -hmm. uh the president won against John McCain 53-47 you know you have situations where you know these types of things you know people aren't really paying that much attention but in a very close election like a Gore 2000 Gore Bush 2000 situation this little moment of where we have these changes in the law can mean can mean who's in power next and and people realize it and that's why you have all these republican legislatures changing the law Yes, yes. Lauren, let's let's go out to our phones. Our number is 347-838-9852 here at Our Common Ground. We have in this second page Lauren Burke. She is a writer, publisher, reporter, uh, and the publisher of CrewOf42.com. She has covered major elections. She understands the issues of both um, voter, regist voter registration and voter suppression uh, in a very detailed way. And she also, Lauren, I like to say that uh, I, I love your site, and I'd like to say that um, you are an expert on the CBC. As a matter of fact, I pulled up. Um, something that from your site that I had never heard, and it was the founding announcement of the Congressional Black Caucus way back when. Right. So we're going to go to Chicago. Alpha, you're on the air. I respect you. You are talking with Lauren Burke. Thank you for your call. Well, good evening, Janice, and good evening, Ms. Burke. I've um, I've been listening 
and um, the I guess the the idea that this president will somehow become a singular voice of the Democratic Party while the members of the Black Caucus, I've seen Congresswoman Lee, I've seen Clyburn, I've seen John Lewis, I've seen some of them step up to the mic. But all every one of them that I see step up to the mic, I see John Boehner. He steps up to the mic on a daily basis. And Eric Cantor, they have so many surrogates to carry their message, their lies, their dishonest truths. But yet you see very few Democrats who are willing to do the daily due diligence of carrying that message. And the message should be they are trying to destroy the economy to regain power. But it appears that, and it's no coincidence that Democrats are looked upon as weak because that's how they act. When they have the huge majority, they pass a lot of legislation. And what happened was that the Republicans came to the microphone and told the people that the stimulus package doesn't work. Where are the jobs after they voted against six, seven, eight, nine jobs bills. They've come to the microphones and told the people that the Democrats are cutting $500 billion from Medicare, and they won the House as the Democrats, not just the Black Caucus, but as the Democrats took the lazy way out. You know, it's about carrying that message. It's about the willingness of them to get in front of a camera on a daily basis. It's about the willingness to tell the people the truth and carry the message. The, the, and as they hold this nation hostage on uh, level after level, be it shutting down the government, be it the debt ceiling, be it saying that nothing will pass unless we get our Bush tax extension, the Democrats simply sit silently and allow themselves to be swift-boated in the media. So they lose the war of perception. They lose the war of messaging, and they can't win. Voter suppression should be, everyone should be in a, in a major outcry. There should be a, a, a galvanized effort for the students to basically protect their voting rights. If, they, if these states get what they want, Obama can never win. Democrats will never win. If they win in 2012, it's checkmate. It's over. They will never give up these uh, gains that they have made. The people in Wisconsin, if they really believe that they can turn what has happened around, they are wrong, and they will continue to be wrong, and you will see it. We've got a report of uh, Prosser, the Supreme Court guy, choking or grabbing around the throat, the female colleague, and yet she didn't have him arrested, and yet they always cede to the lowest level of fear and cower in the corner. This man should have been arrested. This man should have been forced to step down off the bench. But the Democrats, 
This is why they are considered weak. And this is why we cannot get traction. This is not just about a black caucus. This is about a tendency for Democrats to be silent and be afraid of this of this uh, echo chamber, of this mega microphone that the Republicans control in the media. And until somebody steps up and calls them out, we have nothing to look forward to, absolutely nothing. Let's get a response from Lauren Burke. Lauren, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say that, yeah, I, this is a, a often-made criticism that I think has a, a great deal of validity. The simple fact of the matter is right now is that the, the GOP's communication strategy uh, is very disciplined and it frankly works, which is that they all sort of get out there, repeat the same thing, no matter what it is, and they never cross each other, they never step on each other's message. The Democrats tend to not only not repeat the same thing over and over, but when they do get some sort of a message, it's generally not as strong as one might think it might be. For instance, Medicare. You know, their slogan is, uh, you know, the Republicans are going to change Medicare as we know it. Well, if that was the Republicans saying that, the Republicans would say, you know, the Democrats are going to kill Medicare. <laughs> you know, we just sort of say it like that. So there's always been a, a criticism in the last few years, particularly, that the Democrats are not as disciplined about putting out a unified message, even when the issues are seemingly populist and on their side. Um, and, that, and that's something that is got a lot of layers. Uh, it's a very problematic issue because it involves, frankly, a lot of people, it involves the members of Congress, uh, the leadership on both sides, uh, the Senate and the House, and it involves the White House. And a lot of times in these cases, I hate to say it, it's the White House that doesn't want to really engage in a lot of the back and forth because the president seems to have the view, as he told a bunch of Democrats who uh, met with him about three weeks ago, that he doesn't want to engage in political demagoguery, which is just a fancy way of saying, I don't want to get out there and really argue in the same way that the Republicans do. But I think it's a fair statement to make that the Republicans are far more effective in their communication than the Democrats right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, things like, you know, one week of extending the Bush tax cuts cost us $866 million, and one year of one welfare program for poor women and children is $833 million. Now, if you can't communicate that effectively, and that doesn't grab people's attention, I don't know what does. And there's a lot of numbers out there like that with these types of cuts. So the Democrats, you know, are just not particularly good at, at this type of communication. And no one just really can get to the bottom of why that is. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, Lauren, uh, and Alpha, to your point, one of the things that I find is that, especially members of the CBC, uh, some of the more vocal um, members like uh, Representative Jackson, Representative Lee, uh, Representative Scott, uh, uh, so many of them, uh, uh, Keith Ellison, so many of them are so good at communicating in their own district, but it right. is as though that they dilute the power of their own messaging capacity on the national level, and I right. think that that is one of the reasons that they are targeted for such 
criticism. Alpha, thank you so much for your call. I do miss you, my brother, and I'm glad to have you back in the saddle. We're going to go to 972. You're on the air with Lauren Burke. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground. Hello, Janice. Um, Good evening to you and to the guests. Well, Sarah, thank you for joining us from Texas. Hey, the big D. Alpha, I missed you. What happened to you today? (laughs) Alpha had um, pewter problems. I keep telling you that she's on the air. For those of you who missed the Alpha show at TruthWorks Network today, Alpha will be broadcasting his show on Monday night at 10 p.m. at TruthWorks Network. Okay, because I did went and I checked the website and I did see the adjustment was made. Alpha, I keep telling you, keep stop buying cheap. Go ahead and spend that money. We know you have it. But um, I digress. <laughs> You're on the air with Lauren Burke, Sarah. <laughs> Hello, Miss Burke. Um, nice to talk to you tonight. What, what I was How you doing? To, oh, yeah, yes. Um, what I was going to say is this: with as far as the Democrats and what Alpha was saying. The Republicans, they stay on script. It doesn't matter what's going on. The house could be on fire. The roof is about to cave in. They stay on script. They do. They they toe the party line, and they, they do it to perfection. The Democrats, they all contradict each other. Even the president, whatever things are being said, he, he, sucks, he sticks his foot in his mouth, and he does not follow the party line, and he says, says things that, that get them off message. And that has been the problem from day one for them is that they stay off message. They never keep the message clear. It is, it's as clear as mud when it comes to them. What message, Sarah, would you like to see the CBC carrying, whether well, it be instance, to the White House or to, to our community? For instance, with this health care um, plan, this um, health care bill that was signed into law, there was no one that came out and put it out there to say, okay, this is what this bill is about. This is what you can expect to get. Have all the congressional people in the district say, okay, this is this is it. Have the president come out and just, like, hit the high points of what it is. This man, it's like he shows no emotion. He, he have this professorial looks about him. It doesn't matter what it is. He have the same reaction, the same emotion. He's like he's emotionally dead. And I'm just wondering, is this the way he is? I know he's a, he, he seems to be an affectionate man with his wife and children, but when it comes to getting up there, he is like wood. It, it, he's not expressive. The same thing that he would come and tell you, oh, Bin Laden is dead. That's the same news he would come and say, oh, by the way, we're out of a recession. It's the same reaction. He has no, no, no emotion. Well, so it's not the same. The candidate that was on the trail, he ex- he um, created that excitement in in um in the public in his message. He had that in his speech. Now that he's in office, he's he, he is so dry. He's dried and toast. That was You're, one of the sort of that they made a concerted effort when he first came into office to kind of tone down the sort of you know, euphoric hope change feeling that actually got him into office. And I think that they might have gone too far with that. Uh, the other the other thing to remember here is that remember that when the Republicans are on script, it's very easy for them to be on script because their script is to be against whatever the president is doing. 
So it's very easy to walk into a room and say, I'm against whatever's going on in here. The Democrats, with regard to health care in particular, when you have to explain something, that's always a lot more uh, complicated with regard to communications. And the Democrats, by and large, want to be proactive and pass legislation and do things. And that requires a much more complicated communication strategy than you have on the Republican side, which is just sort of we're against whatever the heck they're doing over there. That's one of the things you kind of have to remember when you think about the communication strategies on both sides. I, I understand all, um, all of that when it comes to communication. Well, what I'm saying is this. If you know that you have done all of these so-called excellent things that you've put out there on the White House at golf and all, on all of these blogs that you've put out here for all the, the great things that you have done, how come that we don't see anyone on these talk shows? You see the Republican, every time you look up, they're all over the place saying their crazy stuff, but you don't see any of these Democratic leadership. They're out there pushing the message, getting it out there to say, hey, you know, stop the madness. This is what is being done. This is what you can expect. This this is X, Y, and Z. They're not. It's up to you to try and dig through all, to muddle through everything, to try and get to, to really the truth from fiction. And it's left up to you, the individual, to try and figure it out because nobody is telling you anything. The White House is saying one thing, posting stuff up there, expecting you to go and be scholarly and go and dig through things. Not too many people are computer savvy to go there. These old ladies and, excuse me, from um, these mature adults who don't have computer access, they're, they're not tech savvy to go there and find this information. So these people need to be out here on television saying what it is that they have actually done. And they're not doing, and they're not doing it. So that's why I said they are they are very very inept. Well, one one of the things, and I want to get back to the CBC because I've got Lauren tonight. <laughs> one of the things that we we don't see is we don't see members of the CD, uh, CBC, Congressional Black Caucus, writing. We don't see them in truth truth. Um, Truth out, we don't see them at the nation, we don't see them at the root, we don't see them at the griot, and and I have that same criticism about the NAACP. Uh, I know that you do a lot of covering of Hillary Shelton and what he's doing on the Hill, Lauren, and we're just, I mean, I think that journalism inspires um, producers to be able to go after response and comments on journalism. And we're not seeing enough of that. Are these people uh, hiring writers? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, – see, that question kind of goes to the fact that, unfortunately, right now, for reasons that I, you know, haven't completely figured out, there's no concerted, joint, organized effort on the parts of all of the players, the Urban League, the NAACP, the CBC, the National Action Network, to communicate and have a communication strategy. On the one hand, you can argue that that would be very logistically difficult to do because they have different staffs and so on. But, you know, not really, because they're all really pushing the same messages, particularly the Urban League and the CBC when it comes to jobs. So, mm -hmm. yes, they have writers. Yes, they have press secretaries. But you have to remember that when it comes to particularly members of the U.S. House of Representatives, you're talking about 20-something staffers who are making very low salaries, frank, frankly. Every member 
generally gets 18 staff members and is responsible for a constituency of 700,000 people. And even though I know this sounds like excuses or whatever, you're talking about staff being stretched pretty thin on relatively low salaries. So, Mm -hmm. you know, your idea and your thought that you don't see them in writing in places is, I think, very accurate. The only place I can think of on a regular basis where I see CBC members in print is the Hill newspaper, actually. But uh, it is uh, is interesting to note that you don't see them in Truth Out and the nation because that is an effective and modern form of communication. I mean, most of the press secretaries for the CBC are very young and very savvy about Twitter and new media and all that. But what happens is the time element here, when so much is going on, is is a very huge factor here because you are stretched thin in so many ways and you have to make, you know, a decision about what takes the priority of your day uh, uh, on any given day. So mm-hmm. the fact that you see better communication back in the uh, in the um, district makes sense because, of course, everyone, in fact, is is going to uh, be communi- wanting to communicate to their constituents first before anyone else. But there is definitely a lack of general strategy with regard to everyone that is involved. I mean everybody, Mark Morial and Al Sharpton, everybody. And, of course, there's disagreements too, and that doesn't help. But I think that there are some core issues that everyone involved can, you know, can agree to. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And to Sarah's point, to Sarah's point is that, you know, I think that the White House and the president does respond to those things which are highlighted by the media. And one of the things, for those of you who are listening, that you can do is demand that your favorite Sunday news show invite some of these people who are willing to speak truth to power. Um, I mean, like, one of the things that has happened with people like Alcee Hastings is that the media has suppressed his voice, and he can't do anything about it, but you can. I mean, we should be saying to the Ed Schultz, the Rachel Maddow, I mean, Rachel Maddow goes after, on the issues that are important to her, she goes after the -the on-the-ground voices which is why she's had uh, people from the uh, gay and lesbian transgendered community constantly beating the drum to the White House. And that's one of the things, Lauren, that I think that we can do. Sarah, that I think that we can do, because this White House responds to the noise. That is quite true, and I I have called the White House um, number, but... What what I'm saying is, is if these staff people that they have, they have Roland Martin has a show coming out from there, they could um, arrange to then okay on Sunday, these are a list of different different shows. Start calling these networks. Start trying to get your people on the show. That is what they need to be doing. That's what some of their communication people need to do. Get their people's face out front. And I say this and I get off the line. What the problem is with all of these blacks in the CBC, and it seems that most of them, they're under some sort of investigation from John Conyers to um, Maxine Waters. So, you know, they are shooting their people in the feet. Um, come, this Nancy Pelosi, all these, because I don't even hear it from Maxine. I don't even hear from from um, John Conyers. I don't even hear from, um, what's that, Slick, Mr. Slick here in New York. Th- they're not 
coming up, Charlie Rangel. Charlie Rangel, uh huh. You don't you don't hear them because they have all of their people under investigation. And to me, it don't make it it, it is it is stupid. You are shooting your own people. Look at the Republicans. David Vitter, he's solicit prostitution. He's he's holding fundraising dinners. No one is demonizing um David Vitter. Mm-hmm. But what did they do? They all jumped on Wiener and they said we got to get Wiener out of here. He's bad for the party. He's gonna um. Stop us from winning and all of this stuff here. Are we going to investigate all, everything, or are we going to investigate it? Well, the question for Debbie Schultz, Wasserman, is this. Does she have the respect of the voice of a very specific constituency within the Democratic Party? And if she does, is she creating the opportunity? Is that a, a relevant, pertinent question, Lauren, in your mind? Well, I think that I think that she does. She's actually a pretty forceful arguer uh, for the party. But you see, the the big, the other bigger issue, though, I think, is that you know, the president of the United States holds the biggest bullhorn of anyone in this country. If he wants mm-hmm. to put focus on an issue, no matter what it is, there's going to be focus on that issue. And so part of the frustration that a lot of people have, particularly when you see, you know, uh, 17% unemployment in a a group that is part of your constituency, is that you don't see often, unfortunately, this White House focused on these types of issues because, of course, the dilemma is – we have to bring up that, wow, there's big unemployment in that sector. So they don't want to initially talk about that. But I think Wasserman Schultz and an individual member of Congress, even though she may be the head of the DNC, doesn't have anywhere near the power as the president of the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you are right and that, about that. He, he doesn't. But you see what, once again, it comes back to those advisors of his that wants to keep him insulated. These people are acting as if though they're on a campaign trail and they're not governing. That's the mode that they've been operating in ever since they've been in there, as if they are still campaigning. I agree with you on that, Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for your call. You're you're so welcome. I'll keep listening. You're you're listening to Our Common Ground. Tonight in this second page, we are talking with Lauren Burke. She is the producer of CrewOf42.com, which you should visit. Uh, She is the founder, and um, her work as a uh, on the Hill includes um, uh, working for Senator Tom Daschle at the Senate Democratic Policy Committee, and in the office education office of the late Senator Ted Kennedy, as well as working at ABC News U.S. A Today, Associated Press, The Washington Post, and The Hill Newspapers. We're going to take a break and let Lauren uh, uh, (laughs) get a little break here at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for all of you who are listening. If you'd like to join our chatters in our chat room, Ms. India DeClaire of the India DeClaire Show, which airs Monday through Friday at 11 a.m., here at Blog Talk Radio is in the house. Alpha of the Alpha Show. We've got Shaka Zulu, Stephen Vandergast, the Don out of Oklahoma, and Mimi. And thank you so much for your vigorous, vigorous um, discussion 
uh, with Lauren Burke. We'll be right back. I need no hits. Hit Our common ground. Talk that matters. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Uh, 2009, 
Uh, it's a large 13 by 11 coffee table book, which, Lauren, by the way, I ordered uh, yesterday, I think, uh, of the inauguration of the 44th President of the United States, Barack Obama. And you can go to blurb.com backslash books, 876133, and I'm posting it in our chat room uh, as we speak because it is a wonderful, wonderful book, and um, I will be pleased to have it in my home, and I think it is a piece of history that um, you should all have in your homes. Lauren, tell us about your experience in covering some of these um, presidential campaigns, specifically Hillary Clinton. Uh, running for Senate, which was a very exciting um, campaign, and 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 how a campaign really moves. Uh, it was a very interesting campaign because at the time this was this was two thousand. Nobody was really paying that much attention to that campaign because, of course, the presidential race was getting all the attention. Gore, Gore v. Bush. So uh, the Hillary Clinton for Senate campaign, she was running against a congressman named Rick Lazio from Long Island. Uh, it was a, a relatively low-level sort of operation. You know, we got a, got into two vans and drove around Dutchess County and Manhattan, and that was about it. So you really got to get close to her, talk to her, talk to her staff, uh, see what was really going on. There wasn't a whole lot of spin. There wasn't a whole lot of drama. It was a nice sort of low-key uh, campaign. And uh, I can remember being in the van with um, uh, Adam Nagorny from the New York Times and an AP writer and maybe two other people from the Daily News and the New York Post, and there we were. I mean, so it wasn't like a huge press corps or a big elaborate thing. We weren't flying around in jets or anything. It was just sort of... A, a, you know, a bus campaign. It wasn't really buses. It was two vans. So that was a fun mm-hmm. thing because we got to actually see her, talk to her. We got access to her, and it was a, a very uh, nice experience compared to covering her presidential campaign later on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, professionally, are you a photographer? Well, I, mean, I, I know am. You, well, yeah, you are. But how did you become a professional photographer? What happened was, uh, I was my when I was growing up, my father was a cop in New York, and he liked photography. He handed down all his older cameras to me, and I sort of took to it. But uh, my first real job in journalism was being Koki Roberts' assistant at ABC ABC News in 1994. So someone in New York, I can remember, uh, half my family's from New York, the other half was from Virginia, but someone in New York kind of in the photography department had to go on maternity or something. So I had spent three years being Koki Robertson's assistant, and I filled in for somebody in New York in the photography department. And then from there, got like three photography jobs in a row. One was uh, uh, at USA Today, another was at the Hill Newspaper, and then I ended up freelancing for Associated Press. So it kind of just rolled into three more photography jobs. So after that, I felt like, okay, I really want to get back to writing again because that's what, that's what I kind of, you know, want to do in the first place. So now I'm doing, like, both at the same time, but mostly writing. But in this business, frankly, you end up doing almost almost everything because of the Internet and the the new technology. You're kind of sort of, in a way, required to do a little bit of everything. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, why did you decide to do this book on the inauguration? Uh, It's a beautiful book. If you go to blurbs.com, and I've um, put it in the chat room, it's 876133, books backslash 876133, and you can see the book. Yeah, it's a great thing because it lets you kind of turn the pages of the book. Thanks a lot for uh, purchasing it. Uh, you know, it, it's just the obvious fact of the matter that, of course, this is one of the most historic days in the history of the United States, um, the swearing in of the first black president of the United States. And, um, you know, <laughs> it was really, as everybody knows, an incredible day. You know, you, you're not going to see many things like this again in your lifetime and you kind of could really, you, you could feel that not only during uh, the day that he was inaugurated, but, of course, during the campaign, you could kind of see the buildup uh, and the momentum of this campaign. And so when you're doing that, you've been in the news business for a while, and you've seen, you know, generally in the news business, the way it works is you're covering the same general events every single year. And so when something comes along like this that is clearly something that you haven't seen before, you certainly take the time to um, cover it more comprehensively. And and also, alternatively, we did have at the same time, uh, you know, those sub-stories of Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin, who both of whom potentially could have been first as well. So you just uh, – I put most of my attention into Barack Obama, but the, uh, you know, the point of those two books, particularly the inauguration book, was just to really – thoroughly document one of the most important days in the history of the country. It it, it certainly is, no matter how you feel about uh, how this president is governing, um, that there are very few people in this country who did not experience that day in a in a in a very uh very big way i just think that um i you know i i i always tell the story lauren of um when i was in the 8th grade i won a um the high school uh award for reading the most books during the school year or something like that and my dad had given me um my first um the first large hardcover book um that was my own that was an adult book and it was the man and I, Irving somebody was the author and it was about a black president uh, vice president who had to take over the office of the president and to me as a child that was just a piece of fiction, something that you didn't even come near envisioning. And here in my lifetime, um, we are seeing the first African-American. We have a president, um, and we're seeing it in a the mo- in, in the greatest political turbulence that I can remember, even uh, under the Nixon administration, the Reagan administration, I don't think that this country erupted into the kind of vitriol 
of any kind, the kind of a lack of civility in our political dialogue that we have seen over the last two years. Our number is 347-838-9852, and um, I should tell you, Lauren Burke, that we are we have people in our chat room um, who are saying that they hope that you'll take the messages of our our season of discontent with the CBC <laughs> back to the CBC. <laughs> I'll talk. I, I talk to uh, Reverend uh, Cleaver every day uh, when they're in session. Uh, they're out of session next week, but I'll see him when they come in the day after the Fourth mm-hmm. of July. So I will absolutely talk to him. I think Well, that, you know, uh, one of the things about him is he is not the most articulate and powerful um orator uh that you could find. Um, um that's a disadvantage in his seat. Well, I mean, he's you know, a preacher and all that. He's I I would say that as the last four chairs have gone, he's not uh He's definitely not the worst of the last four. <laughs> you know, the last four are, are mm-hmm. Mel Watt from North Carolina and Elijah Cummings from Maryland, who I think is a very good communicator. Barbara Lee, who I think was a little bit too quiet for the first year she was in. Yeah. So now you mm-hmm. have uh, the Reverend Emanuel Cleaver of Missouri. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, would, I wouldn't say he's Martin Luther King, but I think that he is certainly focused. You know, half the battle is that, you have to be focused on the right issues, which sometimes you find, you know, isn't the case. So mm-hmm. I will give mm-hmm. him an A. I'll give him an A plus for for focus, uh, communication. Mm-hmm. The Democratic Party in general needs a lot of work on that. Yeah. Um, now, yesterday agree. on Crew of Forty Two dot com, uh, you reported that five CBC members voted to defund the war, and thirteen voted to rebuke. Obama about the war, um, and the House voted against legislation that would have restricted funding for the military operation in Libya. How important is that uh, to the overall relationship that the CBC has with the White House? Oh, well, the relationship that the CBC has with the White House is is not very good at all. So, of course, it doesn't improve on that. But, of course, if you look specifically at the members who voted uh, to rebuke the president, voted against the White House on both votes, it's only six people, and two, three of them really are no surprise, which is John Conyers, Maxine Waters, and Jesse Jackson, Jr. Jesse Jackson, Jr. has been very tough on the White House, as has, Maxine Waters and John Conyers. Mm -hmm, And, you mm -hmm. know, what you find with the older members in particular and the CBC in general has, they have about 13 members over the age of 68, you know. They've seen a lot of presidents. They've seen a lot of things happen. They've seen a lot of history. You know, you've got members in there served in Korea, you know. So they are, two members are are 80, one's 81 and the other's 80, Charlie Rangel and, and John Conyers. So, their relationship with the White House is based on watching, you know, what has happened over the years. And unfortunately, uh, there is a perception that this president doesn't really care all that much about issues that pertain to the black community and won't speak out 
uh, forcefully on things that disproportionately affect black people. Now, you know, you have to understand that at the end of the day, just like any other members of Congress, the Congressional Black Caucus has a constituency, and they are speaking on the behalf of their constituency, just like any other members, whether they be white, black, or anything else. So from their perspective, you know, that's who they focus on. From the president's perspective, in all fairness, he has a, a country, uh, an entire country to govern, not just, of course, the black community. So, mm-hmm. you know, the White House argument is always that, hey, we have to do for everybody and we can't get caught in these political traps of only focusing on one group. And, of course, the caucus is saying, look, our constituents are dealing with disproportionate unemployment uh, and a broken education system and disproportionate incarceration, and we need you to, to pay some attention to that. So when it came to Libya, you know, it didn't surprise me that John Conyers, you know, <laughs> is voting. And, of course, his other argument is an economic one. You know, you want to cut – you want to cut community block grants to the tune of $300 million, which is what the president proposed in February in his budget, then you want to pay for Libya, which right now we're almost at, you know, $700 million. We're approaching a billion, and the prediction is that this whole thing is going to cost about $2 billion. So that Mm -hmm. argument is, of course, has reared its head. But the overall relationship between the uh, caucus and the White House is not a good one at all. And it stems back to the election where we had many of the members of the CBC endorsing Hillary Clinton and this president having a very long memory. <laughs> okay. Yeah. On one hand, I yeah. can't blame him, but, you know, they had a lot of these members had relationships with Hillary Clinton before they knew, before Barack Obama was ever in the Senate. So that's another thing that, that is yeah. Yeah. Well, Laura, we look forward to your reporting and – uh, on crewof42.com and what you are doing in regard to keeping, I mean, you are the only focused oversight of this CBC. Uh, I friended them on Facebook, and I'm not getting much out of whatever they're doing out of Facebook, and you really have to search. So I'm hoping that somehow uh with the help of our listeners and encouraging their news outlets and news commentary producers to be responsive to what is coming out of the CBC, that that can help. Because these people need to be yelling to the rafters. Because they actually could be Obama's posse in terms of being the voice for our community, and they are not doing that very effectively. I can see where they're working diligently, but it's not getting to the masses. And we hope that whatever we can do here at Our Common Ground uh, to continue to support crewof42.com, that we will do that. And as we continue to look at voter suppression, we hope that you'll come back again and 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 I really appreciate your spending the time with me and my audience. Thanks a lot. It's been great. I would love to come back, and thanks for everything. Thanks for having me. Okay, and I, I look forward to getting my table, and on our website we are uh, directing people to crewof42.com as well as to your photographic uh, publications.
Thank you, Lauren Burke of CrewOf42.com. And we will see you again here at Our Common Ground. Folks, thank you so much for your discussion with with Lauren uh, Burke because uh, I think that when we begin to focus on what, you know, one of the things that we have to do is we have to frame our arguments, frame our questions out of information, real information. And um, the other is that if we're going to react, if we're going to respond, we also have an obligation and a responsibility to try to look at the energy of solutions. So uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking with Alpho of the Alpho Show. Um, We'll be right back. TruthWorks Network is proud to bring you Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling and Friends. Right here at TruthWorks Network, Wednesdays, 9 p.m. This is Janice Graham inviting you to join Elvin Dowling, Architects of Change and Friends, each Wednesday, 9 p.m. at TruthWorks Network. Change is a good thing. Doing it right is even better. Join Elvin Dow, a change and motivation coach, right here at TruthWorks Network. Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling and Friends. Wednesdays, TruthWorks Network, 9 p.m. Sometimes, in the middle of the night, And, and here's the children's part about it. NPR leans to the right. NPR leans, and you can ask, you know, and when I say NPR leans to the right, I'm simply speaking about who they have on. They have twice as many conservatives on spewing bovine excrement than they do liberals with their chicken excrement. So at some point in time, you have to step back and you have to say, where's the job? What job bills have they introduced? The only thing Republicans have introduced is spending cuts that will cost 700,000 jobs. They are clearly trying to shut down our uh, economic growth and our recovery. You've got governors all over the country turning down jobs for speed rail. Now, regardless of how you feel about the speed rail, you mean the French can do it? Japan can do it, the Chinese can do it, Europe, they can do it over there, but we can't do it here? You know, where is this exceptionalism coming from when we are so um, mired in ignorance and mired in in, in, in just just total obstruction? Listening to the best... Push back politics, the Alpha Show. Alpha, they 
they tell me they call you a gypsy man. We missed you today. Well, Janice, uh, between this uh, computer and having to uh, upload and reload things to it, it seems to be, uh, I, I think I've got it a handle on it, but um, you never know. It may happen again. You know, Janice, I enjoyed the conversation with um, Mrs. Burke. Um, you know, you have so many people who carry the Republican message. They control the media. They control, you know, the base from which the message comes from. So after a while, you get to a point where you either have to force your message through or just reduce yourself that you're going, you know, you're going to lose. Well, it- well, you see, the thing is, you've got a president who backpedals on um, things that matter to black people. Um, you know, a good example is what he did with the Skip Gates, um, Dr. Henry Louis Gates' uh, uh, arrest uh year before last, and then he backpedaled. He did the right thing, then he backpedaled. He articulates the right issues, then he backpedals. And one of the things that I've been saying, Alpha, all along, and it's something that really struck me while Lauren Burke was talking, is that we have to have people to stop him from backpedaling. And when he backpedals, we've got to call them out on it. I don't understand why the CBC isn't calling the John Boehner's, the Eric uh, Cantors, the uh, McCon- McConnells, the, uh, the Bachman woman, the Sarah Palins, the New Gendridges, calling them out every day. And if they do it right, if they, if Alcee Hastings, Alcee Hastings can be like a guard dog on a on a on a on a on a piece of steak. But he's not doing it on these people. I don't understand it. Well, Dennis, let me put it like this. When you get a group, like you said, most of them were Hillary supporters anyway. So, you know, his success isn't a priority for them, despite the cost to the nation. That is what is so unbelievable about this entire scenario. You can have yeah. them out there. You know, you you kill Medicare or Medicaid or we'll destroy your economy. That should be yeah. the message. Yeah, that you're right. You, you are you going to be, co- you are you gonna be covering you this on Monday night? This are you going to be covering this on Monday night? Um, I, oh, absolutely, because what they've done successfully is pulled them over in their battlefield, spending cuts, spending cuts. No, it should be getting rid of the subsidies, increasing the taxes on the rich, getting rid of the loopholes that the yeah. corporations use. No one pays 35%, but yet they're talking about lowering that. Taxes uh-huh. are the lowest uh-huh. that they've been in the last 50 years, yeah. and they want even less. Well, we look forward to the Alpha show just this Monday. Uh, because Alpha was unable to broadcast today comfortably from his perch high above the skyline of Chicago. 
uh, on today. So he will be broadcasting on Monday with the best of pushback politics at 10 p.m. at TruthWorks Network. Alpha, thank you so much uh, for joining us for this few minutes so that we could uh, get you back on the straight and narrow. You got your rocks in your pocket? You're ready for Monday night? Absolutely. Thank you, Janet. <laughs> okay. Uh, we also want to remind you that on Wednesday night at TruthWorks Network, where truth must be spoken more than once, Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling. Uh, we hope that uh, Dr. Deborah is listening, and we are wishing her well as she recovers uh, from her recent surgery. She'll be back with TruthWorks Network in September. We're hoping that she will be well by then. We want to thank Sarah for her call, Alpha for his call, Shaka in our chat room is India Declare of the India Declare Show. And please check out The Real Raw and Right Now, 11 a.m., Monday through Friday at Blog Talk Radio, The I Declare Show. Doc Don is in our chat room. And Stephen, uh, thank you so much. And all of you out there, thank you. We'll be right back here on next Saturday night. At Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves, we want to remind you that we have our website at OurCommonGround.com. We have our community forum where you can go and discuss issues and find information and be informed about our shows at OurCommonGround-Talk.ning.com or ourcommonground.ning.com. And one of the things that we want you to do is to subscribe to each one of those sites so that you can get our newsletter. We publish our newsletter on Fridays every week, and we thank you so much for being with us. We are. You can find us on Facebook, and you can also follow us on Twitter, hash Janice. OCG. I'm Janice Graham. We thank so much Roan Fraser, the writer, playwright, and doctoral student at Temple University, joining us to talk about um, Malcolm X, The, the uh, Life of Reinvention by Dr. Manning Marable, which we recommend reading. And Lauren Burke, sign up for her wonderful blog, crewof42.com. You can find more about her and her work and also her publications. I'm Janice Graham. Next week, right here at 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves. Have a great week, and we'll see you at the Alpha Show on Monday night, 10 p.m. All coming ground. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time.
good evening. This is Janice Graham, and this is Our Common Ground. Thank you so much for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We're here each Saturday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be listening for you. Wishing you peace and power in the new week.